Welcome to Episode 3 of The Grand Scheme of Things. I'm Bill McKim, your tour guide. Well, here we are at our third podcast. It's about time, an amazingly persistent illusion. In the first podcast, I talked about what science is and the fact that nature works according to laws. Because of this, science is able to test its understanding of nature by making predictions and seeing if they work. In the second lecture, I told you about emergence and how it is that the whole is more than the sum of its parts and that you and everything you see around you, including your body and your brain and your consciousness, has emerged from the activities of elements at a more basic level. It's handy to keep in mind Smolin's rule of thumb. A property of something made up of parts is emergent if it would not make sense when attributed to any of its parts. Thus your conscious self, that part of you that thinks and experiences and feels, in other words, your mind, spirit, or soul, if you like, has emerged from the activity of nerve cells in your brain. Now your brain and body, and all living matter for that matter, emerged from interaction with certain organic, of certain organic molecules three and a half billion years ago on this earth. These molecules emerged from the interaction of atoms, which emerged, emerged from subatomic particles, that emerged from something even more mysterious. Physicists argue about whether these were loops or strings of some primordial stuff left to us by the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. In this podcast and the next, I want to deal with what this means for us and how we should look at the universe from our lofty perspective many times removed from the original stuff that created the universe. Using Smolin's definition, emergence happens when you put a bunch of parts together and let them interact. And the result is more than just a glob of parts. The glob as a whole has properties that none of the parts has individually. In the second podcast, I showed that the new or emergent property is not mysterious or supernatural. It ultimately can be understood in terms of the way the parts interact with each other. But if you put the parts together in the same way, at the same circumstances, you will always get the same emergent property. In other words, emergence follows laws and therefore can be studied using the scientific method. And ultimately, any property of anything can be understood by studying the interaction of the elements from which it emerges. Keeping all this in mind, I want to tell you about a couple of mysteries that arise from emergence, or what appears mysterious from our perspective. In the next podcast, I want to tell you about consciousness, but the one I'm going to talk about now is the nature of time. What do we know about time? Well, we all experience it and talk about it the same way. Time is often described as a river that flows from the past through the present to the future. We know what happened in the past, we can remember that, and it cannot be changed. The present is where our consciousness lives, and it is described as now, the part of time when we experience what is currently happening. The future is what will happen. We do not know what this will be because it hasn't happened yet. It does not even exist. Time seems to flow as a succession of nows through the past and on to the future. Even our languages are constructed to reflect this structure. 
with three different tenses, past, present, and future. It is very difficult to imagine any other model of time. Sir Isaac Newton lived in the 17th and early 18th century. He called himself a natural philosopher and is widely acknowledged to be one of the greatest scientists and mathematicians of all time. He invented calculus, and it, he was instrumental in the scientific revolution. In 1687, he published a book called The Philosophy Naturalis Principia Mathematica, or in English, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy in which he described the laws of motion and gravitation that we still use to this day to calculate orbits and trajectories of planets and spacecraft. He also told us about time. In the Principia, here is what he had to say about time. Absolute, true, and mathematical time, from its own nature, passes equitably, without relation to anything external, and thus without reference to any change or any way of measuring time. His view of time was pretty much the same as the rest of us. He believed that it flowed from the past to the present and on to the future. He believed it was a fundamental property that pervaded the universe. Somewhere there was a great natural clock that ticked everywhere in the universe, keeping it in time and marching to the same beat. He believed that time, the time that we call now, the present, pervaded the universe, and that everywhere in the universe had the same time now, so that someone on a distant planet might ask, what is Bill on Earth doing now? And it would make sense. But that was before Albert Einstein and the theory of relativity. In 1905, Einstein completely changed the way physicists think about time when he published his theory of special relativity and introduced the concept of space-time. In special relativity theory, Einstein proposed that space and time were in fact the same thing, and he called it space-time. I have always struggled to gain a conceptual understanding of space-time and never really quite got it. Every so often, however, I get a glimmer of insight, so let me see if I can share it with you. Einstein proposed that when we move through space, we are also moving through time. That is, that's why I call it space-time. This means that people who are moving through space experience time at different rates than people who are not moving. So that if there are two people with identical clocks set to exactly the same time, and one flies around the world while the other stays at home. The clock that flew around the world would no longer agree with the clock that did not move. This is exactly what happens. In a famous experiment in 1971, Halfley and Keating showed exactly that. They flew four cesium beam atomic clocks around the world on commercial airliners in both directions. The time on the clocks had been synchronized with a standard clock at the U.S. National Observatory. After their flights, they no longer agreed with the standard clock. All clocks showed time dilation. They were ahead of the standard clock by about 0.15 microseconds. That's within about 10% of what Einstein had predicted. Now, 0.15 microseconds is not a lot of time. A microsecond is one millionth of a second. 
and this happened during about two days of flying. At that rate, it would take over 36,000 years to dilate time one full second. Not much, but on the scale of the universe, time can add up, as we shall see. Even though time dilation effects are very tiny, they can still have an effect on modern technology. The clocks on satellites circling the Earth do not synchronize with clocks in the ground, and these tiny effects can create errors in global positioning systems. They have to be corrected for, or else there would be increasingly large errors in their ability to determine your location on Earth. But the motion of airliners and satellites is puny when you think that the Earth is moving around the Sun, and the Sun is moving around the galaxy, and the galaxies are moving apart. There's a whole lot of moving going on, and a whole lot of time dilation, too. So what's the link between space and time? Why does time change when you move through space? Well, it all has to do with the speed of light. Before Einstein, James Clerk Maxwell had proved that light, in fact all radiation, moves at about 186,000 miles per second, and that nothing moves faster than light. But what was even more remarkable was that he also showed that this speed was absolute in the sense that the speed of movement of an observer made no difference to the speed of light. Now, if we're talking about, say, two cars, one moving east at 100 miles an hour and the other west at 100 miles an hour, the cars would be moving apart at 200 miles an hour. But light doesn't work like that. If light were moving away from you at 186,000 miles a second, and you were moving in the opposite direction at 1,000 miles per second, you might expect that you and light would be moving apart at 187,000 miles per second, but not so. The speed of light would still be moving away from you at, as usual, 186,000 miles per second. Similarly, if light were moving away from you at 186,000 miles per second and you were moving in the same direction, chasing it at 1,000 miles per second, the light would still be moving away from you at 186,000 miles a second, not 185. The speed of light relative to you does not change no matter how fast or in what direction are you moving. Now, how can this be? This puzzled Einstein. He was concerned about this and he thought about the question for a couple of weeks, I suppose. Could Max, Maxwell have been wrong? Well, he finally figured out an explanation, and this changed physics forever. Einstein argued that the speed of light does not change when we move toward or away from the light source, but the speed of time does. Thus, if you're chasing a light beam across space, your time slows down for you so that the light beam is still moving away from you at the speed of light. In fact, if you had some super antimatter drive that allowed you to go the speed of light, time for you would stop, allowing the light to continue moving around at its normal 186,000 miles per second away from you and your spaceship. You would, in effect, stop moving with respect to light, but the clocks in the rest of the universe would not change, and to any observer outside, 
your ship would seem to be moving away or moving around at the speed of light. What makes this so tricky is that the subjective time on board the spacecraft does not change. Your clocks are slowing down, but so are you and the entire spacecraft. You would not notice anything. Your time is slowing only in relation to the non-moving observer. If you look ahead at the light beam you are chasing, you would see it moving away from you at 186,000 miles a second. And when the light beam looks back over its shoulder, it will look like you are standing still. It has recently been shown that the universe is expanding and that the rate of expansion is increasing. This appears to be due to the presence of what they call black energy. No one really knows what black energy is, but it looks like the galaxies on the other side of the universe are moving away from us at speeds nearer and even faster than the speed of light. Their clocks, to us, must be ticking very slowly indeed compared to ours. But from their point of view, ours are moving very slowly too. So in this sense, both space and time are the same thing, so that when you move through one, you also move through the other. You've got to love space-time. <clears throat> Show off. Movement through space is not the only thing that can change the passage of time. According to the theory of relativity, gravity can also dilate time. The closer you are to the source of gravity, the slower your clock will tick. Now, the Earth's gravity decreases the further you are away from the center of the Earth, so clocks in valleys will tick more slowly than clocks in the tops of mountains. Thus, people who live in valleys will grow old more slowly than people who live on the mountaintop. Not much difference, but measurable. Since the Earth gra Earth's gravity is greatest at the center of the Earth, clocks there run a bit more slowly than clocks on the surface in valleys or on mountains. It's been calculated that after 4.5 billion years since the Earth formed, the Earth's core is 250 years younger than its surface. Not much, you say. But if you were near the tremendous gravity of a black hole, your clock would slow down so much that hours to you would seem like years to the rest of the universe. Let's not get too bogged down by this. The bottom line here is that time is not universal. Clocks all over the universe are ticking at the same rate, either because they are moving through space or because they are experiencing varying degrees of gravitation. Let's just leave it at that for the time being and think about what this means for time. This insight of Einstein suggests a new model of how the universe is constructed one that would replace Newton's idea that passing of time is the same all over the universe. This new model is usually called the block universe. It envisions a block with four dimensions. There are three spatial dimensions. Well, that's the usual up, down, left, right, forward, back. But the fourth dimension is time. This four-dimensional block is solid and filled with the entire universe. And because time is one of the dimensions, it contains the universe with every moment in time from the Big Bang to the end of time. 
It's all there, including you, along with your past and your future. Yes, encased in this block and frozen along the time dimension is you, your past and your future, your entire life. It is fixed there, waiting for you to move through it and experience it in a succession of nows. Okay, now this is a four-dimensional block, and we are inside the block, so we're not able to see it. But if there were a fifth dimension, we might be able to move outside the block universe and see the future. From the inside, however, you must pass along the time dimension to see the future. And how fast we move along this dimension differs depending upon where you are and whether you are moving. The mind boggles. One important implication of the block universe is that the future is fixed and just sitting there waiting for us to experience. This should sound familiar to you if you have listened to the first two podcasts of the grand scheme of things. Remember Laplace's demon. Laplace described a deterministic universe in which all events were caused by previous events. In the 17th century, he speculated that if there were an intelligence that knew everything about the past and knew all the laws of nature, it would be able to see not only the past, but also everything that would ever happen in the future. Now that sounds a lot like a block universe to me. The implications of this are clear. There is no such thing as free will, and there is no way we can change the future. We're just along for the ride. Now I'm going to come back to this in the next podcast, that's podcast four, but in the meantime, let's get back to time. Modern theoretical notions of time are certainly not intuitive and do not come easily to the understanding as Newton's vision of time. To gain a grasp of this view of time, you will need something better than my puny powers of description. Fortunately, help is out there on the web, so let me refer you to a video hosted by Brian Green. There are numerous graphic descriptions of Einstein's theory on YouTube. To watch Dr. Green's video, just search on YouTube for Brian Green Theory of Time. That's Green with an E. So it's Brian Green Theory of Time. There seem to be quite a number of such explanations out there with clever graphics that certainly help people like me gain a bit of understanding. So, watch them all. Sooner or later, you should click into place. After the death of one of his dearest friends, Mikhail Bessel, Albert Einstein wrote to Bessel's family saying that his death, quote, signifies nothing for us believing physicists, the distinction between the past, present, and the future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. End of quote. Einstein wrote this about a month before his death. What did Einstein mean when he said that the distinction between past, present, and future was merely a persistent illusion? To what was he referring? It could be that he was merely offering comfort to a grieving family of a dear friend, or was contemplating his own impending death. Many think he was referring to what we've just been discussing, that time moves differently depending upon where you are in the universe and how fast you are moving. Your past could be in the future of someone on the other side of the universe living near a black hole. But Einstein could have been speaking of something else altogether. 
he could have been referring to what is often called the arrow of time, not time itself. He could have been talking about how we perceive the passage of time and divide time into past, present, and future. If the future is as real as the past, why is it that we experience the past first? Before Einstein, we could say that the future does not exist until it's created by the past, but we now know that this is not the case. So why do we perceive time as flowing in one direction? Why do we have this illusion of time? Well, the answer has to do with the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the universe will always move toward entropy, or put another way, and I quote here, in a closed system, entropy will never decrease. End of quote. You need to understand entropy before this makes sense, and I will get to that shortly. But what is important here is that this law of nature has a direction. It says that entropy, whatever that is, can only increase. It will never decrease. Thus, anything that happens involving a change in entropy can only happen in one direction, an entropy increase. This means that when it happens, the universe before it happens must be different from the universe after it happens. That is, the past must be different from the future. Now, there's something special about second law of thermodynamics that you should know. This law is the only law of nature that describes a process that only works in one direction with regards to time. All other laws of physics, those that govern mechanics, both Newtonian and quantum mechanics, electronics, magnetism, even Einstein's laws of relativity, are entirely reversible with regard to time. These laws do not distinguish between the past and the future. To them, past and future are the same. But to the second law of thermodynamics, the past and the future must be different. The second law of thermodynamics is the only law that requires time. Now let me elaborate. If you take a video of something happening and then play it backwards, most of the time someone will notice. For example, if you video a rolling ball until it stops and then play it forward, what you see is what actually happened. But if you show it to someone in reverse, you would see a ball sitting there and then it would start moving faster and faster even though no one touched it. Anyone would know instantly that something was wrong. This effect is called the arrow of time. That is, some things happen only in one direction. Smoke never goes back in the chimney. Rubber balls stop bouncing. Now, if you make a video of a solar system showing a moon orbiting a planet and then run it backwards, no one would notice anything wrong. If a reverse video can be distinguished from a forward video, you know that you must be seeing the operation of the second law. So what's going on here? This means that without the second law of thermodynamics, the universe does not need the concept of time. I know that sounds a little bit drastic, but stay with me on this. First, I need to tell you about the thermo part of thermodynamics, that is, heat. It was the study of heat that gave us the second law of thermodynamics. So let's make this a little clearer. Let's do a little thought experiment. 
Let's say you have a big box which is divided into two chambers by a wall. On one side of the wall there is hot air. You have a thermometer in there that says 100 degrees. On the other side the air is cold and the thermometer on that side says 0 degrees. Now let's remove the wall between these two sides and see what happens. Of course the hot side gets colder and the cold side gets warmer. The heat on the hot side moves to the cold side and this process continues until both sides are the same. At no point does any heat seem to move from the cold side to further warm up the hot side. Now you've just seen the second law of thermodynamics in action. This is good. On cold winter days when you come inside stand next to a roaring fire it is good to be assured that the heat from the fire is going to warm you up rather than the heat from your body going to make the fire hotter. Now let's talk for a minute about what is actually happening at the molecular level. What is heat? Well, the question was answered in 1738 by Daniel Bernoulli, a Swiss physicist who showed that gases were composed of numerous atoms and molecules that were constantly in motion and colliding with each other. When you heat the gas, the particles accelerate and a lot more collisions occur. The kinetic energy of the particles is heat. Because the particles are always in motion, they're always colliding with each other, and the energy, that is their heat, is spread evenly throughout the container by these constant collisions. In the case of our box, there is a lot more kinetic energy in the molecules on the hot side of the container. When you remove the wall, those molecules are free to move into the cold side and bounce against the slower moving molecules, speeding them up. The molecules from the hot side thus lose their kinetic energy, the heat, to the molecules on the cold side. The hot side cools down and the cool side warms up. Now the first law of thermodynamics says that no heat is lost. It's just dissipated from the hot side to the cold side. This is because the second law of thermodynamics says that heat will always dissipate in one direction. Now there are two points to be learned here. First, heat is an emergent property. Using Smolin's definition, individual molecules are not hot, but the gas is. An individual gas molecule, even one traveling fast with a lot of kinetic energy, is not hot all by itself. It needs to be bouncing against other molecules before the concept of heat has meaning. As Smolin says, a property of something made of parts is emergent if it would not make sense when attributed to any of its parts. So heat is an emergent property. The second point I'm making here is that since the second law of thermodynamics is the only law of the universe that proceeds in one direction in time, then past and future, like heat, must also be emergent. Because the concept of heat cannot apply to an individual molecule, the second law of thermodynamics does not apply to it either. So there's nothing that distinguishes between the past and the future of that molecule. If so, for a large part of the universe, things that are very small, heat does not exist, and therefore time does not exist either. Just think of it. For a single molecule or subatomic particle of anything, 
There's no difference between the past and the future. Any interactions it has with its neighbors would be the same if the video of it were shown in reverse. The past and the future would be the same, and time would be completely unnecessary dimension in the space-time block. Time would not exist. All living things, on the other hand, emerge in a realm where he already exists. The existence of life depends upon the second law of thermodynamics. The entire process of evolution of life is centered around heat and the diffusion of energy from the sun. And we, as human beings, evolve in a realm where heat is everywhere, so we see time everywhere. We evolved in that level of emergence where most of the phenomena we experience, including our own bodies, are governed by the arrow of time and can only proceed in one direction. Our brains have been selected by evolution to be able to make use of the second law. We create our own mental existence around time. We can easily understand time and know how to respond to it, but it seems like much of the rest of the universe doesn't know or care about time. But the time we understand so well is only experienced at close quarters, in our little neighborhood of our planet. So we do not see time change in response to motion and gravity on the grand scale of space and gravity in the rest of the universe. We are comfortable, so we impose a Newtonian view of time on nature. On the other hand, Einstein had a different perspective of the universe, and to make his universe make sense, he invented space-time. The theory of relativity has undergone many of these tests of falsifiability and passed every one. But that's okay. We don't need to understand space-time to be successful at nearly everything we want to do. Illusions can still be helpful. But it is always a good idea to remember that perspective is everything. Perhaps, like Einstein, we can find comfort in knowing what is an illusion and what is not. I promised that I would tell you about entropy. The second law says that in a closed system, entropy will never decrease. What is entropy? Well, remember that thought experiment about heat, and I described a box that had hot gas on one side and cold on the other. That box is a closed system. No heat or energy of any kind can enter or leave the box. When you remove the wall between the hot and cold gases, the hot gas warmed up the cool gas until there was no longer a temperature difference between the two sides. That box is now in a state of entropy, and what's more, it will stay that way because the second law says that entropy will never decrease. Entropy, then, is a kind of reverse way of saying that heat will only diffuse from hot bodies to cold bodies and will do so until there is no temperature difference anymore. Our box is a closed system, and the entire universe is also a closed system. According to the first law of thermodynamics, the universe was created with a fixed amount of energy, and it will always have that much energy. But the second law says that heat or energy from the warm areas will always dissipate toward the cold areas in the fullness of time, 
all that heat will be in a state of equilibrium throughout the entire universe, just as happened in our thought experiment box. There will be no warm areas and no cold areas. The entire universe will be at the same temperature, and that will be universal entropy. And this is why the past will always be different from the future, at least until there is universal entropy. Order and Disorder So far I've been talking about heat, but the second law takes in a little bit more. Instead of heat and cold, we can substitute order and disorder. Let's go back to our thought experiment again. Only, rather than a box with air, we make it an aquarium full of clear water. No pumps or filters going, no fish, just water. Then you take a bottle of blue coloring and put a, in a drop. At first you can see the dark blue drop just sitting in the water, but soon it appears to slowly dissolve. The area around the drop will be dark blue, but the color will fade and further, the further away you look from the drop. Soon the coloring will have dissipated throughout the water and the drop will have disappeared. Sounds familiar? This is called diffusion. The molecules of food coloring will have moved from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration, just like heat moves from areas hot to areas that are cold. It is the motion of the molecules that does that too. All those molecules are zipping around in the aquarium and bouncing off each other, and they bump into molecules of dye in a random fashion. And it doesn't take long for the dye to get spread around the aquarium, just like kinetic energy. When you put in the drop, there was a sort of order. That is, if you wanted to find a molecule of color, uh, I could tell you where to look. But later, if you wanted to locate that molecule, I would be unable to do so. Sort of like my office desk. Now there's something else you should know about the second law. It's not strictly true. It says that heat always moves from hot to cold, but this is based on averages of large numbers of molecules. It is not true when you're thinking about very small collisions of molecules. It is possible for several slow-moving molecules to bump into a fast-moving molecule and impart kinetic energy to it, making it go faster. This would be a case where a cold area had transferred energy to a hot area, contrary to the great second law. But the law really refers to the collision of trillions and trillions of molecules on the average. Although technically possible, the chances of heat moving in the wrong direction are so low that they're never likely to happen in the expected life of the universe. While it is statistically possible that all air molecules in the room you are in now will move to one side of the room, allowing you to suffocate, but don't start holding your breath. There are about 2.53 times 10 to the 25th molecules of air in a cubic meter. That's 2.53 times 10 with 24 zeros after it. The chance that all of them are going to be moving in the same direction at the same time is very small. So small that it is possible to make a rule of thermodynamics that says it can't 
or won't ever happen. But this serves as an example of the importance of perspective. From the realm of emergence we occupy, we do not see the molecule and atoms. We only get to perceive them in their billions of trillions. We get to see them only on an average that reflects their emergent properties, which, by definition, are different from their properties as single particles. Well, the banjo player is back, reminding me that it's time to shut up, and that I will do. I hope you will return for Podcast 4 when I want to tell you about free will and why it's just another one of those awkward illusions. <laughs>